Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And sit down, get comfy, because today we're talking about the facts of life. Well, one of them, at least. Birth! <laughs> Birth is something that doesn't always show up in the archaeological record, but hey, we know it happened. Yep. One of the ways we know it happened besides the obvious one that we're all here, is ironically because of the traditions associated with the male partners of birthing mothers. Don't worry, we'll get to the moms very soon. But first, I want to talk about something called the kuvad. So, kuvad. What? <laughs> I'm going to tell you. Kuvad is a word derived from the French kuvad. <laughs> it's, it's, oh, it's derived from that? Yes. So cuvée means, uh, well, it means cover, but but in this context, it means incubate or brood. So this ethnographic term designates a rite of sympathetic magic or formula for newborn recognition of newborn. So it, it sounds complicated, but it's, it's practiced in a lot of different cultures at the time of the birth of a baby, uh, traditionally a son, but that may vary from culture to culture. And it's, it's kind of a simulation of birth by the father and this practice or some form of it is attested all over the world and throughout history from places like melanesia lapland borneo brazil europe it's more or less global the interpretation until recently most accepted is the one formulated by the swiss anthropologist johann jacob bachhoven remember him from i think from our um yeah. Lady statues episode. He's the the whole guy with the motor vest. Yeah. Also, it's very generous to call him an anthropologist. The Swiss thinker of thought. Swiss dude. Swiss guy. Old timey Swiss dude. Old timey Swiss dude, Johann Jakob Bachhoven um, in 1861. And he, as you may recall, had this whole idea about transfer from a matriarchal to a patriarchal society over time. And he related this kuvad practice to that what i know so why well because this this idea of the mother giving birth and then the father needing to have a part in it was to him um an an, an example of sort of a transfer of matriarchy to picture look i don't know um on, on the other hand like there are real living traditions where this is something that happens where it's like a sympathetic pregnancy and we'll get to that and they and they say this is this is a transfer of matriarchy to patriarchy, thus proving what Backhoffen said, I'm assuming, is what happened. Probably. They're like, oh, yeah, that's definitely why we do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They told him so. No, I mean, I don't I don't know why people do it. 
But the fact is that the tradition <laughs> exists and probably for a lot of different reasons. Um, so there. Nope, are, it's just that one. Just that one. Yeah. The prehistoric matriarchy. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, no. Um, there are some traditions in the Caribbean islands, uh, in some of the Caribbean islands, wherein, for example, uh, men whose partners are expecting children fast for six months, starting from the fifth month of their partner's pregnancy. So I'm assuming this isn't like complete food deprivation because they would die. But <laughs> I assume it's limiting their intake of food in some way. In modern times, Cuvad syndrome is the medical term for sympathetic pregnancy, where the father can experience symptoms like weight gain, nausea, insomnia, and mood swings. 90% of men are said to experience it to some degree, and it's largely attributed to empathy and stress rather than any sort of magical exchange of hormones or like pregnancy fairy being dust. In a, being in a junior type situation. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. What an awful movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but according to psychologists, this kind of sympathetic support is great for new moms like duh. I guess, like having an empathetic partner. Duh. But anyway, mothers who receive stronger emotional care from their partners show fewer symptoms of postpartum depression and anxiety, which is great. Okay. So we, so we want, we want, uh, like people having babies want empathy, they want empathetic support, but not necessarily sympathetic support. Right. So like, cause if they're like, Oh goodness, like this weight gain and mood swings and my breasts are so tender and they're like, Come on, <laughs> get it together. But there is an, uh, a more extreme case, and this is really what I wanted to talk about. So on the extreme okay. end of paternal empathy, there is the birthing practice performed by the Huichol people, um, a Mexican population descended from the Aztecs. In this traditional practice, the wife gives birth in a hut while the husband sits on the roof above her with a rope tied around his scrotum. That rope runs down to the wife who, whenever she has a contraction... <laughs> can yank on it <laughs> presumably <laughs> i'm not laughing at it no no I'm, no just the idea i'm is laughing very out of like the discomfort mm -hmm. that all parties are experiencing mm -hmm. so presumably oh, oh gosh this helps the husband feel his wife's pain and helps the wife i guess feel better in general so that's that's the the sort of <laughs> early interpretations of this kuvad idea like the the 1850s philosophical interpretations I don't really hold with, but um, it is a practice that, you know, defines something of the, the other partners, the non-pregnant partners place in, in the pregnancy. But that's really sort of secondary to what we want to talk about today. So let's talk about birthing. Okay. Well, let's do that by talking about the classical world. Let's do um, this is from an article entitled Childbirth in Ancient Rome. Cool. The medical care of pregnant women and the processes of labor and delivery are described in a range of historical sources, um, including our boy Pliny the Elder, mm. his natural history, mm -hmm. and Celsus. Yep. Um, neither Pliny nor Celsus were physicians. But, okay, but they were both dudes who wrote books. Yep. And they knew some in stuff. doing so, oh, they, they, <laughs> they heard some stuff. Mm -hmm. um, they wrote it and, down. And they wrote it down, including folklore, religious and superstitious practices associated with medicine. 
So they might as so, well have been doctors. They were basically doctors. That's how basically that works. Doctors. Yeah. Um, yeah. They read like WebMD. <laughs> they were, yeah, they were WebMD. They were BCE WebMD. But plenty of the elder was in CE. BCE and CE WebMD. Like, okay. It's not working. It's not. I need to go back to the workshop. Okay. Keep going. Plenty uh, describes the herbs and plants used for uh, labor, like childbirth, not not like the proletariat like activity. Farm hands, no. Uh, um, and relief of pain. A drink sprinkled with powdered sow's dung will relieve a labor pain. Yeah, because you're going to be busy going, oh! Yeah. Also, quote, Fumigations with the fat from hyena loins produce immediate delivery for women in difficult labor. Plating, placing the right foot of a hyena on the woman results in an easy delivery, but the left foot causes death. I would like to know if this is a live hyena, because in that case, either foot is a pretty dicey proposition. This, this is <laughs> so dumb. So dumb. <laughs> oh, it's it's going to there's OK, there's one. Like, don't worry, it gets gets dumber. It gets way dumber, but first, there's a tiny tiny note of less dumb. So let's get to that. Celsus um, notes among his many, many methodologies that, quote, sneezing relieves a difficult labor. Which, like, that makes sense, kind of. Like, if you are... How? Well, because the... the, How does that make sense? Because when you sneeze, you contract all of those muscles. I just mean, like, it's just, there are... You're pretending to sneeze, yeah. I'm seeing what tenses up. It's yeah, it's exactly that. It's like the the tense. I I imagine that a sneeze might help kind of push things along. Having never given birth, I'm not sure. Well, but I I sure have sneezed. If you've given birth and also have sneezed, drop us a line. Right I in. Guess. Yeah, please. How'd it work out for you? Um, it is likely that many of these traditional practices were in common use and required no particular training. What particular training would be required? Being able to powder sow's dung. I'm like being a hyena wrangler. Okay. So some of these remedies, like dung, um, could increase the risk of infection. Yeah, don't drink poop. Um, But if you did powder that poop, um, it would have diminished its pathogenicity. Still drinking poop. Yeah. Not great. Not not ideal. No. uh, Pliny also describes a wide range of herbs and medication used for pregnant women or during delivery. Um, oh, this is fun. Dittany. Dittany. Dittany leaves. Uh, scordotus and hydromel and the root of vervain. What? So scordotus, I think, is is like wild garlic. What? Hi- We've talked about hydromel, I think. Isn't, isn't, isn't that, that the sour water wine? Honey? Yeah, sour wine mixed with honey, which sounds ick. It's, I just used context clues. Yeah. No, you did really well. So it, not Thanks. only is it sour wine and honey, but it's garlicky salad. You're basically drinking a nice vinaigrette, actually. It's like, um, it's a um, shrub. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to jump back in this list of lesser known Game of Thrones characters. Mm-hmm. Dittany leaves, Scordotus and Hydromel, and the Root of Vervain are some of the apparent vast reservoir of folks, folk medicines recommended. Mm-hmm. Um, he also gives advice for bringing away the placenta with a mixture of earthworms with, mixed with raisin wine or the covering membrane call of newborn goats taken with wine. Yeah, none of this gets any more, any less weird. Um, 
So this, that Celsus, was all plenty. That was all plenty's deal. Now, Celsus has his own spin on this, um, suggesting ammoniac salt, which is like smelling salts. Yeah. Or Cretan Dittany. It's a very specific Dittany. It's a whole litany of Dittany. Oh, goodness. In water for this purpose. While most of these practices <laughs> left efficacy, they indicated attentiveness to the mother and at least attended to hydration and labor and provided some placebo effect. It's like really, really trying to make this okay. Make it, yeah. Be like, well, in their defense, it did show that they care. I mean, yeah, you get like a point for effort there. So continuing along from from this text, um, <laughs> I'm such I, a child because his name is Soranus. Yes, the well, it's probably Soranus, but it just I am a child, and it made me giggle for Soranus. 15 minutes that this this author's name was Soranus. The most eminent Anna did text me about this. I did. The most eminent ancient authority on childbirth and gynecology what there was of it, was Soranus of Ephesus. <laughs> he wrote the text Gynecology, specifically for the instruction of midwives. I'm going to call him Soranus so we don't giggle throughout. Which is like lady study. Yeah, gynecology, the study of the ladies. Ladies. Soranus <laughs> identified three stages of pregnancy, conception, pica, and labor. The identification of conception in ancient times posed difficulties. Um, so... Actually, uh, in, in sort of what anatomy studies there were, the ovaries and fallopian tubes and uterus had been identified and it was known that something happened there to, so like a man's seed was deposited there. Oh, um, ew. Well, yeah. Ew. <laughs> oh, Morky correspondent didn't like that. But the process of ovulation was unknown. So the whole process was just sort of like, well... There's the man parts and then the lady parts and then something happens in the lady parts. But well, they, during- must have, they must have taken the same seventh grade health class that I took. Yikes. During the early phase of post-conception, uh, care of women would include rest in bed to encourage the, oh, you're not going to like this, preservation of the seed. The pica phase began about 40 days after conception when the women might experience nausea, dizziness, and cravings for extraordinary food, such as, quote, earth, charcoal, tendrils of vine, unripe, and acid fruit, end quote. Sounds oh, like a, not, not sounds extraordinary like, a, like the pizza I made this morning. Hey. Hey. No, it sounds like a, like a cleanse that someone tries to sell you on Instagram. Um, so treatments at this pica stage may include a massage with olive oil or a bland diet of eggs or rice porridge. Eh. The process of labor and delivery occurred in the home of the pregnant woman. Midwives and their assistants attended the home and preparations included, quote, oil for injection and lubrication. Would they be mid-bridesmaids? No. If they're assistants? No. Midsmaids? Maybe. I'll keep working on it. Yep. Yep. Let me know how that goes. Um, so oil for injection and lubrication. And so injection doesn't mean like into the bloodstream or anything. It means like into, into the, the birth canal, um, warm water, sea sponges, pieces of wool and bandages for the newborn, the woman. And this is, this is going to come up later. It was usually in the seated position. 
Serranus gives details of the midwife's stool, meaning a chair, not her poop. Uh, although no such stools remain from ancient times, impressions can be gained from terracotta reliefs. So basically, um, these were stools with hand rests that the pregnant woman could grip while someone stood behind her and held her from the back with their arms clasped clasped around under her armpits, supporting her weight. So she was in a seated position, supported from the back. Um, and so here's a fun fact. Contrary to popular mythology, cesarean section, which we call C-section, was seldom performed in ancient Rome. Julius Caesar himself was not born in this manner, which we know because his mother, Aurelia, lived for many years after his birth. And at that time, C-section would most likely have been fatal to the mother and only used as a last effort to save the baby. So if his mother was alive, he wasn't born by C-section. The origin of the name, then, is obscure, but it might come from Caesarean law, which decreed that if a pregnant woman died, the body could not be buried until the child had been removed. Other possible origins are from the Latin caesum, meaning having been cut, and the term caesones, referring to the infants born by postmortem operation. It could not be performed in a living woman until the 10th month of gestation, as the mother would not survive the operation, and consequently, it was rarely undertaken. So, cesarean section, not what you thought. Just when they're, just when they're overdue. Mm-hmm. 10 months. No, Wolf. well, it's 40, 40 weeks. Right. Yeah. No, 10 I guess. months. Right, 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 right. Isn't, right. That, isn't that weird that everybody talks about pregnancy being nine months and then like everybody make, like people who are having babies make it to like 38 weeks and they're like, oh no, what? Oh man. <laughs> like I'm not yeah. done. <laughs> yeah. It's not um, done cooking. Every oven is calibrated differently. Mm. Generally, <laughs> generally, giving birth was risky in antiquity and prehistory for any number of reasons. So apart from looking at the so-called medical literature of the time, there's no getting away from the fact that talking about ancient childbirth has the potential to be a real, real bummer. And that's exactly what we've got here, although this case is also a fascinating one. After all, I'm the one talking to you fascinating bummers um and before we get into it just want to give folks like heads up that um this story may be tough to hear if you are affected by stories of infant mortality infant mortality and um maternal mortality just yeah maybe give, pass forward a bit yeah give this one a pass if you are uh if you are sensitive to those issues and yeah. uh skip to the interview section that's coming up yeah, skip till you hear Anna talking. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> spoilers, there's an interview. Um, no, we're going to, it's going to be in the episode description. <laughs> well, maybe they didn't read it. Maybe they're just, maybe they, like me, don't have a sleep timer and it just rolls through and then you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, who's talking? Mm. That does it's happen Anna. to me. It does happen and it's to an me interview. All right. Well, okay. Coming soon. An early medieval grave near Bologna, Italy, was revealed to contain an injured pregnant woman with a fetus between her legs. Based on the positioning of the tiny bones, researchers concluded that this was a coffin birth when a baby is forcibly expelled from its mother's body after her death. The pregnancy and the woman's head trauma may also be related. Not that she became pregnant from the head trauma. The burial, dating to the 7th or 8th century um, A.D., she says, was found in the town of Imola in northern Italy in 2010. Because the adult skeleton was found face up and intact, archaeologists determined it to be a purposeful burial in a stone-lined grave. The fetal remains between her legs and the injury to her head, however, 
triggered an in-depth investigation, which was recently published in the journal World Neurosurgery. World mm. Neurosurgery. <laughs> uh, by researchers at the Universities of Ferrara and Bologna. Based on... Sorry, I just rem- I just remembered why the head trauma and the pregnancy are related. She gets to it. Okay. Okay. Okay, we're good. Based on the length of the upper thigh bone, the femur, the fetus good was job. estimated to be about 38 weeks gestation. The baby's head and upper body were below the pelvic cavity while the leg bones were almost certainly still inside it. This means it was positioned like a near-term fetus, head down in preparation for birth. But it also means that the fetus was likely partially delivered. This example of coffin birth is interesting from an archaeological standpoint, but the state of the mother's health makes it completely unique. She had a small cut mark in her forehead and a five millimeter circular hole next to it. Taken together, these are suggestive of trepanation, an ancient form of skull surgery. Not only was the pregnant woman trepanned, but she also lived for at least a week following the primitive surgery. In the World Neurosurgery article, the Italian researchers proposed a correlation between the mother's surgery and her pregnancy being eclampsia. Eclampsia is a disorder of pregnancy uh, where there is high blood pressure and the risk of seizures. So you probably have heard about this if if anyone you know who has been pregnant um, has a risk of preeclampsia. Right. And I think May was uh, preeclampsia slash eclampsia awareness month, just so you know. Now you're aware of the awareness month. Okay. Um, but yeah, eclampsia is, it's still a major hazard for women. Mm-hmm. Um, well, a major hazard for, for people ha- uh, who are having babies. Yeah. Yeah. It's for pregnant people, um, mm-hmm. and people who are going to push them out. Mm-hmm. Um, the researchers write, quote, because trepanation was once often used in the treatment of hypertension to reduce blood pressure in the skull, we theorize that this lesion could be associated with the treatment of a hypertensive pregnancy disorder. Um, whether or not the trepanation is linked to the coffin birth, it's especially interesting to see a study like this. Maternal and infant mortality are often overlooked in the archaeological record, um, maybe because we know what a risky process it was and it's just sort of taken as a given. Yeah, I think I think that's a really big part of it and sort of taken as a given at like a monolithic thing. And, and it's not really looked into uh, about the, the various reasons why um, infant mortality or, or maternal and infant mortality may have occurred. That's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. 
Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. We are now going to hear from a very special guest. Dr. Ah. Yeah, Dr. Natalie Laticina is an anthropologist who studies the pelvis of humans, non-human primates, and hominins to learn about the process of giving birth for all of these different species. So if you just if you just went with who studies the pelvis of humans, you make her sound like a real creep. <laughs> um, no, she is a delight and her creep factor is entirely entertaining. Um, <laughs> she's a good friend. Um, so I sat down with her recently over Skype and I learned way more than I thought there was to learn about the birth canal. And so now listeners, we pass on that learning to you. And we recommend that while you're listening, you, you lie on your back and perform a sympathetic birth of your own. Well, we're going to talk, well, Natalie and I are going to talk about uh, whether or not lying on your back while giving birth is a good thing. So you can be in whatever position you want, (laughs) listeners. (laughs) Let's go to the interview. So Natalie, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Um, You are an anthropologist who studies obstetrics in prehistory and ancient history. So what can you tell me about your main research that you've just been conducting? What kind of questions are you asking? Yes. So my dissertation research was looking at the human birth mechanism and then comparing it with other primates and then fossil humans, hominins, as you know from this podcast. Um, So (laughs) when I started my research project, I basically wanted to find out when in human evolution, the human birth process got to where we are today. And when you think of childbirth, you probably think of pain and screaming and in the hospital. That's what TV tells me. Yeah. Right. Right. That's the media perception. But that's not how our ancestors pre-medicine could have given birth. And when we look at other primates, we don't see, you know, monkey C-sections. So I was interested in (laughs) seeing when in human evolution, there was this change to what I'm calling a difficult childbirth. And just by that, I just mainly mean a tight fit between the maternal pelvis and the baby's head. When we see that occurring and what is causing it, is it the neonatal size that's the main constraint or is it our pelvis, um, us being bipedally adapted? Right. So, so let's, let's back up a little bit. What exactly does a human birth look like in, I, not in terms of like on, <laughs> onlooker, uh, view, but what 
does the 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 infant the the newborn need to do to get out of the the womb? What needs to happen? Because you were saying it's it's difficult, it's convoluted. So what actually needs to happen for human birth to take place? Well, short answer is it's variable and it can happen a lot of different ways. But uh, right. if we're Super. thinking about a typical, right, we're talking about a typical modern human birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the human pelvis, the birth canal specifically, has three main planes or areas within the birth canal where the pelvis is the bones are going to impinge into the canal enough okay, that it's going to so, change the shape of the birth canal. Okay, so there's three there's three points at which there could be some blockage or like trouble getting through. Right. Okay. And so one's at the very start of the birth canal that we call the inlet. One's at the middle, we call the midplane, and uh-huh. then the end is the outlet. Uh, so what's going to happen is once the cervix is fully dilated, the ba- in a typical birth, the baby's head is going to enter the birth canal at the inlet. And the inlet is wider side to side than it is front to back in a modern human typically. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's going to happen is the fetal cranial length is the longest part of the head. Right. Okay. So that's going to have to align. Think of the baby going head first and entering that birth canal entry, that inlet. It's going to have to align where the maximum length of the fetal skull is aligned with the maximum part of the birth canal. That makes sense. You don't want. Right. It's like whatever equivalent of a square peg in a round hole. Exactly. Uh, I've heard the analogy of watermelon through a nostril. Oh, good. uh, and grief. Yeah, you're all. So um, with a human, the widest, the biggest maximum point of the birth canal at the inlet is from side to side. Okay. So the fetal cranial length is going to align facing sideways. Okay. So the baby starts off so downward and sideways. Right. This, what we think is different than the other primates because the other primates at the inlet, they're or what we have thought is that their birth canal throughout the whole birth canal is more front to back expanded, anterior, posteriorly mm-hmm. expanded. So those primate, other primates don't have to do that initial rotation to enter the birth canal. Okay. So the baby can just kind of go whoop and start going yep, down. Just right through. Yeah. Okay. What we thought. Uh, so in human birth, it, we're already starting out with an initial rotation that's not seen in non-human primates. Mm-hmm. And like I said, this can vary, but we're just describing a typical modern human birth, right? So then the baby is aligned with the head side to side going down. But then at that mid plane, remember I told you that second plane in the pelvis, we have the ischial spines are going to impinge upon the birth canal. Uh, that's from that's, that's the your sides. butt. It's your butt bones, right? The ischial. Uh, a little bit of the ischial tuberosities. Right. The ischial spines are right above. Yeah. Okay. So right above the butt bones. Yes, exactly. And so the ischial spines are impinging on side to side. So now the shape of the birth canal is changing where the largest axis is actually front to back. Okay. So the baby's head has to turn again. So now it's exactly. looking forward. So it goes from side and then it's got to turn front to back. But actually how it rotates a typical is the baby is going to be side to side and the head is going to rotate 90 degrees and it's going to face be facing backwards. Oh, Oh, so okay. So if you okay. think of the okay. eyes, 
So the baby's then, yeah, sort of looking out through mom's tailbone. Yes, exactly. And so we have a second rotation that, again, is not, we didn't think is seen in the non-human primates. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can imagine every time there's this bony impingement, there's a risk of the fetal head getting stuck. Right, which is terrifying. Terrifying, right? Uh, So it's just an added difficulty, an added danger. But then we have in modern humans, the baby's head still has to exit. We're only at the midplane, right? So it can exit the outlet with its head still going aligned Backwards, front to or, back. You know, looking right. Looking back, yep. Right. But imagine what's following the heads. The rest of the baby, I hope. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And humans have some pretty broad shoulders. Right. Oh, the head's not the widest thing anymore. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. So in the shoulders, I mean, they can squish up and, you know, shoulders are more mobile mobile than. Yeah. But still pretty broad. And in modern humans, we see uh, what's called shoulder dystocia. And that's when the shoulders can get stuck. Mm. So typically the baby has to rotate a final time to squeeze those broad little baby shoulders out. And so we have typically around three rotations that a human fetus goes through to give to successfully be delivered. Whereas non-human primates, it's been long thought there is no constraint with head or shoulder or body size in non-human primates. So they, and again, another great analogy you're going to like, it's uh, like a water slide is how I've heard it described. Oh, so non-human primates just, other primates just kind of go, whoop, there's a baby. That's what it's been thought. Okay. Well, right? yeah. So you keep, you keep saying that's what had been thought. So is it, does it turn out that it is a little bit more complex in non-human primates? It is. Uh, what my dissertation research found was when you actually look at a non-human primate birth canal, they are more complex than we thought. And okay. the reason we haven't really noticed this before, I'm, we, you know, the past decades of research is because in the past, what has been looked at in non-human primate birth canal is just comparing the fetal head size to that first obstetric plane, the inlet. The inlet, right. So they yeah. don't, they don't consider the shoulders or any other further possible points of um, right. baby sticking. <laughs> Right. And, and if you look at a non-human primate pelvis, it's not a human pelvis. Right. It's shaped completely totally different, different right? right? Yeah. Totally different. But we're, they, we have still been using those human-defined landmarks to mm. identify an okay. inlet. Okay. So, so basically your research question was how do we look at these different pelvis with their own markers rather than trying to force these human markers onto them? So how did you go about that project? Like what, what kind of things did you look at? Yeah. So this was the fun part about the research, right? I got to travel to a bunch of museums and I took this little portable laser scanner and I scanned a bunch of different species of non-human primates. Uh, these, I chose are, these are uh, skeleton specimens, right? But not, not, not living specimens. primates. Okay. Unfortunately, a chimpanzee would not allow me to scan it when it was in labor. Um, no, I might get my face inconsiderate. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But again, if someone was trying to scan me, I might too. I don't know, but no, so, yeah, these were all skeletal so samples. For, yes. So, 
obviously this is just um, their skeletal samples. I'm not seeing a real primate give birth. Real primate births are in the wild are really, they're rarely witnessed. Uh, primates typically give birth alone at night yeah, you would in really to, high in trees. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It seems safe so, and private. There is not a lot, yeah, of what's witnessed. And there have been more recently a few births, primate births in zoos, but sometimes zoo animals have some confounding yeah, factors like so obesity. Might be, yeah, there might be some differences going on there. Exactly. So I was like, you know what, the best way to do this right now is just to look at skeletal samples. Okay. So what'd you do? Yeah. I scanned a bunch of uh, bones. I specifically the pelvis and the clavicle. That clavicle being your you know, collarbone because that's going to give me shoulder breath. The adult clavicle yeah. or uh, infant clavicle? Great question. I scanned adult specimens of everything. So okay. adult female pelvis, obviously, because I wanted to look at the fully formed birth right, canal. one of the female because, duh. Yeah. Um, sexual dimorphism, not not sure about in birth canals and non-human primates. Mm-hmm. That's a future research question, patenting it now. I'm just kidding. Damn, damn, uh, damn, but, damn. <laughs> and with the clavicle, I did an adult clavicle as well because uh, I have, me and a couple coworkers recently published a paper showing that if you have an adult clavicle, you can real, pretty accurately estimate the neonatal biochromial okay. breath, which so is the whole can, shoulder breath. Okay. So, so it's from can, one female clavicle. Yeah. So that was giving an estimate and neonatal clavicles, you're not going to find them. Um, too small. Too they're delicate. not ossified. No. Yeah, exactly. Even in skeletal samples, they're not complete. It's not. Okay. Estimate. So that so, wouldn't have worked, but uh, you were able to basically use ratios to determine what an infant's clavicle would have been from the adult clavicle, something like that. Yeah. We used a, a regression analysis. Okay. Yeah. Math. I know. Um, so then I went back to the lab with all these scans and I put my scans into uh, animation software called Autodesk Maya. Have you used it? I have not. I've used other not sponsored. I've used other Autodesk <laughs> software. Um, but yeah. yeah, so basically this is what uh, animation companies who, who make movies, this is the Disney, stuff that they yeah. use. So you basically were making mm-hmm. movies of reconstructed birth canals. Exactly. So yeah, this so is the cool. first study. I think so. It's the first study <laughs> to my knowledge, uh, that reconstructed entire birth canals of, I had about 26 extant primate species, mm-hmm. From the new world, the old world, all the apes and humans, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can't forget the humans. And I reconstructed entire birth canals of each individual and identified species specific constraints. So, where okay. in each species were the minimum dimensions in okay. the birth canal? Where are the potential sticking points for each species' birth canal? Exactly. And then I'm assuming and since you had the clavicle width, did you also estimate skull breadth for each species for, for the infants? Yeah. So I was lucky enough to be able to scan some infant uh, neonatal, sorry, some neonatal crania at mm-hmm. one institution, which was amazing. But for the others, it was kind of just estimating. Mm-hmm. Again, you don't get a lot of neonatal right. it crania. very well. Yeah, there's a lot of published uh, ways to estimate cranial area, length, 
breadth, height. So then I just kind of created an ellipse in this software. So and from there it was baby. Exactly. And I made it this great aquamarine color. So, you know, really stand out. Blue ghost baby going through the, the, the model birth canal is amazing. Exactly. And then it was exactly what you said. Um, I was creating animations basically of this baby head going through the birth canal and saying, does it fit? Does it not? Does it stick? Where does it stick? Yeah. Why is it sticking? Is it head? Is it shoulders? What's happening? Um, and yeah, it was a lot of fun. So you said you, um, well, I, oh, I have so many questions now. Ah! Um, so you said that you used extant, um, ape and other primate species and humans. Did you also, yeah. um, use any specimens that were of hominins, like early hominins, or did you use pre-existing data or, cause your question is how did birth change through human right. evolution? So uh, where where is that information coming from? How do we get along the progression from apes and other primates through to our early ancestors and then through to us? Yeah, I did. Um, I wasn't, I didn't scan hominin material directly uh, due to, you know. Oh, yeah. Museums not letting you cost, touch their stuff. travel. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> uh, there, I used research quality casts mm. for some specimens. Mm -hmm. I used some authors provided me access to their scans that they had directly made on the hominin fossils. Okay, cool. So I did have a pretty good specimen specimen um, range starting from Lucy at 3.2 million years ago to I had a Neanderthal as well. That's so cool. So Lucy is an Australopith and yeah. Neanderthals are Neanderthal. Yeah. And then some cool stuff in between. Um, Ugh, I'm so jealous. I know it kind of worked out because I'm working on, I just actually, a paper's in review with two co-authors on the birth mechanism in Australopithecus sediba. Oh, so cool. I'd already had that access. So that was an easy fossil to just get out of the way. <laughs> nice. And look at mechanism. Hey fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop and click on the link. Primates, maybe unexpectedly, non-human primates, none of them had their most constricted points at any of the human-defined obstetric planes, that inlet, midplane, and outlet. They were totally that different? That was totally different. It was not a point of constraint for any primate species I looked at. Wow. And, in fact, the inlet was only the most front-to-back constraint in one fossil hominin species. So, so we're really different. It's We are different, but it's also these other species are different as well. And it's we shouldn't be putting broad overviews of mm -hmm. one size fits all obstetric constraints on these species that they move differently. You know, uh, they have different things going on with their lives. So it was really cool. Um, I found that basically we've been underestimating the constraint and. Again, by constraint, I mean tightness of fit between baby mm -hmm. head mm -hmm. and 
minimum dimension of the birth canal that identified in each species. We've been underestimating that in all non-human primates. Really? Yes. So my favorite example of this, and if there's any specific primate that I looked at, you can ask about, but my favorite example is, so in modern humans, if you look at the fetal cranial length and how much it takes up of the minimum front to back dimension of the birth canal, Mm -hmm. so that's at the inlet, the length takes up 114%. That's so that's a lot. That's linear dimension. More that's more than there, there is. That's 114% is more than there is space. No? Right. Right. So that's linear. So that's if not we great. look at the area, if we look at the area of the fetal head in the area of the average of my human inlet sample, the area a fetal head takes up of that inlet is 92%. Still really really tight. Okay, so that's why the baby has to turn the head. Right, exactly. When we look at, I had three species of Cebus, and Cebus monkeys are those little monkeys in Central and South America. Yeah, they're really cute. Highly recommend pictures. But this might be traumatizing. So the Uh, baby's head. (laughs) (laughs) Listeners, if you're squeamish, fast forward about, I don't know, 30 seconds until you hear me stop yelling, I guess. (laughs) In these three species of Cebus, at the minimum dimension of the birth canal, the baby's head took up 256 ah! to 365 percent oh, of the birth. Oh no! How did they get that head through there? Does I know? Does the mom like dislocate half of her pelvis? Yes. Oh, I was kidding, but ow! So yeah, then my question became: Okay, how are these monkeys surviving how, to give birth? Because they there baby. are no monkey mid- midwives. Yes, exactly. How, how monkey baby get out? <laughs> Ow! Isn't that terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying. Well, non-human primates have a couple mechanisms that they can alleviate constraints, and one is the fetus can enter going face first. So its face is presenting directly into the birth canal entry Okay, and going through that way. So if you do that with yourself, extend your neck so that your face is going through the birth canal, you're going to break your neck if you're going as far back oh, as you can. Thanks for telling can. me after I started doing it. <laughs> you know how I let you go too? I was just like, yeah, let's try it. <laughs> it's fine. It's cool. But yeah, so these monkeys are able to extend their neck enough so that their face is going face first. And I mean, we walk bipedally, so that's an right. issue. Right. To do that. Um, another way that these monkeys can get through the birth canal, because even going face first, these Ceba species, it's still 140 to 150 some percent of the birth canal being taken right. up right. by the head. Still not enough going face first. These monkeys, it's been shown through radiographs. Um, Meredith Stoller, I believe is her name, in 1995 did a dissertation where she actually had radiographs of a squirrel monkey giving birth. And the squirrel monkey was able to expand its pelvis to a degree that humans couldn't. Okay, so so there's something elastic going on there. Yes. And if you think, so that was basically my... Here's how these monkeys give birth is they can expand the pelvis more and they can go face first. Well, why do you think humans can't expand their pelvis more? Because wouldn't that be an easy way out? We wouldn't have to rotate at all. I assume it's because we need our pelvises for walking. Yeah. And also think about we stand upright. What happens if your pelvis opens up too much? (laughs) You do a really undignified split. 
and, and, <laughs> yeah. all, and also like would your guts fall out prolapse yeah oh prolapse. no prolapse uterus I, oh boy right i believe it's a risk of prolapses that we're mitigating that risk by saying, okay, baby, you're going to rotate and humans have fontanelles. So the human cranium isn't exactly the cranium isn't fused. They can squish together and reduce. So yeah, listeners, I don't know if you know this. I know that when I, when I taught this in my intro anthro class, a lot of my students went, what? No. (laughs) Uh, But the reason babies' heads are so soft is that because it's the, the portions of the skull have not yet fused together. And so there are squishy spaces where there is no skull. Well, I mean, there is skull. It just hasn't come together yet. And especially up at the top, um, there's something called the anterior fontanelle, which is uh, a spot that is relatively uncovered. So the head is malleable. Right. And Yeah. And so there becomes this difference between humans and primates, and non-human primates, where in non-human primates, the mom is kind of taking the hit if you can say by like expanding the pelvis Mm -hmm. and the baby's helping by going face first, theoretically, but in humans, right. And humans, the baby's kind of overcoming a lot of this by having squishy heads and (laughs) rotating. (laughs) You're welcome, mom. (laughs) And so when we look at the hominin record, we're, you know, fairly certain that Lucy, the first Australopithecus mm-hmm. pelvis that we have, she was walking on two legs. So theoretically, she wouldn't be able to open up her pelvis as much either, or else she is at risk for prolapse. Right. right. And I will say there are animals that are quadrupedal that do have prolapse. Um, yeah, I've heard of cows having them. Yeah, uh, cows are pretty big prolapse risk, but I think think it might be more because they're domesticated. Oh. I'm not sure okay. in wild cows, you'd see that same thing. Hmm. So I just want to caveat that, but I don't know, not a veterinarian. Nope, so. me neither. <laughs> but I feel perfectly qualified to speculate wildly. Right. And so we want to look at hominins where theoretically they're walking on two legs either. So they can't have this risk of prolapse. Mm-hmm. So how are their, their babies compensating? And well, one Australopithecus had smaller brain size than modern humans. Right. So there's that, but there's still some tight spots where the baby, it was a tight fit. And with one of the hominin pelvis, I had STS 14, which is an Africanus specimen. Mm-hmm. There is this huge debate in the literature. I don't know if it's super current right now, but you know, a few years ago debating whether there were anterior fontanelles in Africanus neonates. Yeah. And one side says yes, one side says no. And I would suggest with the research I've been finding that it would really help if these (laughs) early hominins had fontanelles. Yeah. Even with, I mean, human pelvis also relax during labor, I mean, but just not to the extent that we do have big giant brains. I'm not, it's not, I'm not bragging. It's just like we have big brains (laughs) and sometimes it's a problem. No, you brag away. My big brain. Yeah. But I mean, these seabeds also have really large relative brain size as well. So, but they don't have fonts. Interesting. So what does that mean for sort of the evolution of the birth canal? Is it, is it a case of there is kind of a trajectory from one trend to another, or is it that every individual species has its differences? You know what I found, and this is so unsatisfying, it's every species is different. And the problem or problem slash great thing about the hominin fossil record is 
I wasn't able to say, here's a fossil at 1,000 years, 2,000 years, 3,000 years, right? right? You didn't get a it's, timeline. Right. Well, there was 3.2, 2.5, you know, 2 and million. On the scale of, yeah, millions of years, right? Yeah. So there may be a gradient, but I think it it's more of just seeing interspecific differences and counting that as what's cool about hominid evolution yeah. and seeing the differences. And, and one of my specimens that was later in time, you know, or closer to us in time, it had a very, what we would call a primitive birth mechanism, but that's just, it was adapting to its own thing, you know? So it, my main takeaway from this is we just can't place human metrics on other species that aren't modern humans. And even in modern humans, I'm not quite sure it's correct to just keep the birth canal at those three obstetric planes. Okay, There's so, so much population differences, geographic uh, variation in birth canal. Really? Okay, morphology. so, so yeah. a mom from one side of the world might have a different setup than... How, yeah, how, the, how big are the differences? There was a paper published in 2018 by... I'm going to totally butcher their names... Leah Betty and Andrea Manica in hey, Proceedings sure. of the Royal Society. Um, but they found that the shape of the birth canal was significantly variable due to geographic variation. Wow. Um, and the shape of the birth canal specifically. So there just needs to be more investigation of entire birth canal morphology rather than just saying, oh, we know where the bones stick the most yeah. into the birth canal <laughs> we got these and that's three, it. Three ouchy points. Right. Yeah. And but the thing is like, it's not always the same place in humans. Even, even in modern humans today. Yeah. So, so what does that mean? How do we translate that knowledge into practice that might help modern human moms and babies? Because this, this means a lot for there, there is a significant amount of um, infant mortality that arises from from babies getting stuck and and infant injury, right? That that shoulder. Sorry, yeah, what was the, what was the word for that? Just, it's called dystocia. 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 Yeah, or obstruction um, means the same thing. Yeah, shoulder dystocia is a little less prevalent, but you, what you see a lot of dystocia, shoulder dystocia, especially and uh, any dystocia, just obstruction of the getting baby stuck. getting stuck, yeah. is yeah bigger babies and what we're seeing especially in you know the united states is obesity being a factor and larger moms typically have larger babies so because the baby is consuming what the mom is consuming in terms of diet exactly so there could be this trend of larger babies at the same time we have a trend of increasing medicalization of birth. Right. So you gotta have, you gotta take, sectors. you gotta give birth in the hospital. You gotta, yeah. Right. And so what happens to the pelvis when we remove this evolutionary selection to keep the birth canal large? Ah, I mean, I don't know. Interesting question. There is a theoretical paper out, um, that suggests that the birth canal is getting smaller and if and if that's true, the babies are getting larger. It's going to be tougher and tougher, more obstructed. Right. So then back to your question, what does this mean in modern sense? That's a really tough question because my answer is always the mom should do whatever the mom wants and whatever she's most comfortable with. So if she is comfortable with a C-section in a hospital, she should do a C-section in a hospital. If she's comfortable at home 
you know, in do a pool that. of water I, with exactly. incense and beautiful Zen music playing. Whatever, crystals whatever the mom wants. The main goal is a successful delivery of, right, of course. the child, right? So whatever happens. Uh, but I do think what this is showing is there's variation. And even on an individual level, um, I saw individual variation within these primate, non-human primate species. So there's obviously variation within modern humans and just creating what is right for the mother and the child. And yeah, but then just remembering back to these primates that have baby heads that take up 300% of the birth canal saying, yeah, I had to one more time. Sorry. Mm. And (laughs) saying, okay, well, remember they can give birth. It's natural. You can too. You know, oh, actually, just, okay. I that's empowering. I am no longer cringing with my pelvis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I won't remind you that they do it differently and there's different mechanisms, but women can do it. You know, <laughs> we've been doing this for three plus million years, so we can keep doing Heck it yeah. no matter how you want. It's your pelvis. <laughs> You do what you yeah. want with it. Um, actually, that brings up another question. So when I was doing some research for this episode, um, I was seeing a lot of um, recommendations or, or you know, uh, archaeological evidence for birth happening sort of squatting or sitting. Um, but now, you know, on TV, uh, the, the media perception is it happens sort of lying on the back with the feet in the stirrups. Is there a particular position that might be sort of healthier in general for, for moms and babies like, so that, that would facilitate an easier birth? I mean, gravity is always a friend of a laboring mother, right? <laughs> so. Put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> gravity a laboring mother's Uh, friend yeah lying on the back is actually a pretty recent thing Uh, is mainly thing if you're lying on your back who's that helping the The doctors yeah right and when you lie on your back um, the pelvic outlet actually closes sometimes up to 25 percent no of the area so that's not helping we don't i mean think about if you're lying on your back obviously your your sacrum is going to tilt it's going to move up um it's mobile so not good right i mean ideally i feel like squatting or even in a chair with a big hole i've seen um in some drawings of i believe mayans have a birthing chair mm-hmm. uh, that would obviously a lot of be cultures ideal. seem to have a birth- birthing chair i was uh ancient yeah. greeks and uh egyptians do as well like great right and i think that's a good middle point i mean squatting is obviously a great idea but i mean i can't squat now and i'm not pregnant so i can't imagine well you know, it, it I, would sort of imply you need an assist assist or preparing yourself yes yeah you know or like handles to hold on to or something yeah but i mean even with that can you imagine giving birth i mean no it's your first time squatting in like six months oh yes oh boy so i think there's whereas if you think of traditional populations typically the women are gathering so they're squatting all the time Mm. all day long anyways so So you know those muscles are that's not out of line Right. Exactly. Whereas would I go ask, you know, a woman from Boston, hey, go squat down right now. Shoot. Give birth. Yeah. No, I think there would be some some swearing. Uh, yeah. But the, the birth get, chair seems to be a good like middle grounds. I don't yeah. know if those are going to come back to 
Maybe they are. I'm it's the new squatty honest, potty. To be honest, once the baby's out, I really have no idea how they do it. <laughs> so <laughs> I only cared. How does that head fit in the birth canal specifically? <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye. Enjoy your birth. <laughs> well, that's, that's amazing. So you took these model birth canals and you made videos of yeah. ghost babies going through these imaginary birth, not imaginary, but these model birth canals. That's so cool. Thanks. You're cool, but glad you think so. <laughs> Amazing and wonderful to learn about the past and our ancestors. But ultimately, as anthropologists, we're sort of always kind of putting it back on on modern humans now and how it informs what we do day to day. So exactly. Yeah. Cool. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your research with us. And thank you so um, much for having. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to plug? You mentioned that you had some papers out. Um, are you working on anything? I have a paper in review that hopefully will come out soon. And that's on the birth mechanism in Australopithecus sediba, that really weird fossil hominin from 1.9 million years ago in South Africa. Um, really weird birth mechanism. So I hope that comes out. Oh, soon. teasers. Um, I know, right? We'll keep the an primate eye out for that. stuff is being written up, but... Yeah, um, I would just plug a pretty cool article is written about my work in Sapiens. Oh, yes, we will. We will link to that as well. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you um, can people find you on social media? Do you want do you want people to find you there? Yeah, I have a Twitter if people are interested. Yeah, I mean, I don't post super interesting stuff, but people are welcome to connect and ask questions. I'm happy to answer as much as I can, or if anyone wants to collaborate, I'm totally open. So, yeah. so what is, yeah. what is that Twitter for people to find you? Yeah, it's at N M and then my last name, L A U D I C I N A. Okay. We I mean, we will, we will write that out okay. for people to yeah. read on our show notes. <laughs> Good um, but yeah, so follow uh, Dr. Laudacina on Twitter. And uh, yeah, thank you again for sitting down with us. Thank you so much, you guys, for having me. This is so much fun. Wow. And or. Ooh. Thank you, Dr. Laudacina, for that amazing interview. And thank you, listeners, for listening. We will be back in your ears soon with new episodes, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, and wherever else you get your pods. And you can really help us out by leaving reviews and stars at all of those places. Find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all of that is together on our website, thedirtpod.com. You can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. And we will also put a link to our dirt shirt store on the website. Yeah. And we put out extra bonus content for our Patreon subscribers. Le Patreon. Le Patreon. Um, you can get access to bonus goodies like video content. Yeah. For as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Thank you for listening. Au revoir. I don't know why we got all French. We love you. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Uh, go away. No, we love you. Bye. Don't go. I mean, come back next week, but bye. Bye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, 
Dig Tech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.